0: So if you have your Bible, open to Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14. It's interesting that the gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel account of the ministry, life and ministry of Jesus, but it's the fastest. It's very fast paced until you get to about this point in the scriptures. In the last couple days of Jesus' life, Mark slows way down, provides a lot more details. And we're going to be in the gospel of Mark until Easter. And so we will walk through the Gospel of Mark slowly, and we'll enjoy it. Now, this isn't just a ploy to have a sermon on Easter. Thanks, to, thanks be to God that uh, there's plenty of passages talking about the resurrection of Jesus. But what I want to do during this time is really focus on the person, the life, the ministry, and the promises of Jesus as we go through this time. The reality is we say here at Christ Community Church that we exist to glorify God by making followers of Jesus Christ who are growing and multiplying. And so our vision for the next few years is to just slow down and be faithful in making disciples of Jesus in authentic community. That's what we want to do here. And one of the ways we hope to do that is through faithfully teaching God's Word each week from the pulpit and through our community groups, providing opportunities for you all to grow together and really uh, mature uh, together. And so if you're not yet connected to a community group, I want to urge you to get connected. Um, You can let us know that either by filling out your connection card, talking to Pastor John Fox or myself, and we will help you get connected. But one of the things that we see throughout the whole of Scripture is God's constant invitation to his creation to trust him. One of the biggest issues in life is that we don't faithfully trust God. And we we don't build opportunities and environments as we're pursuing God and getting to know God to grow in that faith and that trust so that as life happens, we respond in faith and trust. And so as we see here, Jesus is entering into this time, going to the Passover meal where he's knowingly going to be betrayed. And what we'll see through this passage is that Jesus perseveres through betrayal out of dependence on the Father. It's easy when we read these passages about Judas and Peter and the rest of the disciples failing Jesus to want to place ourselves there and focus on, I'm a Judas, I'm a Peter. But the reality is, yes. And that's exactly why Jesus ultimately went to the cross is to rescue those who betray him by disobeying him. But I don't want to focus on that for the next couple of months. What I want to focus on is how does Jesus respond and live Faithfully, fully God, fully human, as he endures this type of disappointment and suffering and grief. How does he live through it? And the, the the main thing we'll see as he sits at this meal with his disciples is that he does so, he perseveres, he continues to go on faithfully through betrayal. How? Out of dependence on his father. He trusts his father. Notice there, he's not putting his hope in his disciples. He's not putting his hope in his circumstances. He's not putting his hope in if then, then, if this, then that. He's putting his hope solely in the command and promises of his Father. And what Jesus is showing us is not only that we can trust God, but also how we can trust God. And so I hope you're excited like I am to continue the narrative in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, And they prepared the Passover. So first of all, it's going to be unique or rare to see a man carrying a jar of water in the city. Typically, that's a role for the women or for a servant. And so when he's sending them in, it's not just like Jesus isn't like, I'm going to get my crystal ball out and figure this out. He does know what is to be. He does give command, as we've seen the last several chapters in Jesus' ministries. They've seen glimmers of his divinity. He's now showing more and more of it to to provide uh, a clear picture of who he is, fully God, fully man. They're going out of obedience to the Father to celebrate the Passover. The Passover meal is a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people, rescuing them out of Egypt. During our Advent series in December, I taught how Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. So them going into right before his death on the cross to celebrate the Passover isn't just a coincidence. It's God's providential timing so that he might be illustrating and providing opportunities, not in that moment necessarily, for them to understand what's happening, but that their faith might come and be complete after He's raised from the dead. And so Jesus is persevering through these things, knowing what is to come, being faithful to the Father to go eat the Passover meal. Now, a couple of things we can also draw out of this passage is that the Passover. Um, must be eaten within the walls of Jerusalem. Now, the lower parts of the city were often downwind of the sewage in Jerusalem. There were often smaller houses, more impoverished people lived there, and there would not be a house that had a larger upper room. So most likely, Jesus was going into the upper part of the city to have the Passover meal um, in a more affluent area in a pass- that had an upper room large enough for his Passover meal. And so we see Jesus going into this upper part of the city with his disciples, to have a meal. As I noted in my sermon a couple of weeks ago, that the, the Passover meal was at first intended to be eaten quickly to, to signify and symbolize the swiftness by which God delivered his people out of Egypt. But as the, as the Jewish people came under oppression of various leaders, they began eating their Passover meal more reclined and more relaxed, which we'll see. And so them going into this time, this celebration, it's not just a feast for the sake of a feast. It's a time to come together to reflect on and enjoy God's faithfulness to them as a people and enjoy one another. so it goes on in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said to him, One after another, is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for the man if he had never been born. Now, I want you to slow down and imagine being at this meal. Have you ever had an awkward family meal? or maybe a meal with people and you weren't expecting um, things to go poorly for you. By this point, it wasn't just a a secret to the disciples that Jesus had angered the religious leaders and the politicians. So by this point, his disciples knew he still went into the city in obedience to the Father to enjoy and celebrate the Passover. They're at this meal reclining, slowing down, because the Jewish people slowed down for their meals under oppressive governments during the Passover showing faith that they believe God is able and will deliver them. And so in this meal, reflecting upon God's deliverance, Jesus goes and makes this very profound pronouncement. One of you will betray me. Now, we can project our own opinions or thoughts of what that might look like. Maybe he was mad, but we've seen Jesus mad before, haven't we? And when he does when he's mad... At least at certain times, is create a weapon and go into a temple and start flipping stuff over. And we don't see this happening here. We see him informing his disciples of what will happen. He's been doing that along the way, and we see time and time again, his disciples do not get it at the time. He's faithfully obeying the Father, walking with the Father, speaking truth and love in obedience even when he's misunderstood. He's plowing through this opportunity, reclining with his disciples. I mean, imagine this. You know that you are about to be betrayed by someone around the table. You know that betrayal will ultimately lead to brutal beatings and ultimately to your death. Would you be sitting at the table? Yet he did so. And we're not going to walk into the Lord's Supper this week. We're going to wait and enjoy it next week. But we see him sitting at the table. Matthew puts it this way in verse 26, or Matthew 26, verse 25. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. And really, what that translates in the Greek is, Is it? Is it? Is it you? We do know that Peter does betray Jesus later by denying him three times. We know that other disciples take off and run when he is arrested. We know that by and large, everyone around this table will fail Jesus. And so as we're talking about the willingness of Jesus to persevere through betrayal because he's dependent on the Father, The first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus remains faithful even when those who follow him are not. I fear that we live in our Western culture, this idea that Jesus is weakened when we are not faithful. Jesus is not weakened when we are not faithful. Jesus remains Jesus and all-powerful and mighty and faithful, and he perseveres. He remains Jesus he doesn't need us to believe or to behave or to present him in some way, otherwise, he will diminish. That is not who he is. He's is eternal. He's all powerful. He is mighty. He is faithful. He doesn't waver. He doesn't change. He remains faithful, even when those who are following him are not faithful. When counseling couples where there has been unfaithfulness either by both sides or one side, typically you hear something like, I feel like I need to go be unfaithful in order to make it fair. Fortunately, Jesus doesn't have that thing, that same thinking, that faulty thinking. He doesn't say, well, since you're going to betray me, I'm going to betray y'all. Death, right? He doesn't do that. He could wipe out the whole town. But instead, he stays focused on the will of the Father. He remains faithful to his calling. He stays faithful and consistent to his nature. Jesus remains faithful even when those who follow him are not and so the purpose of our faithfulness as his church, you know, I hear people say all the time, wow, that pastor's behavior really tarnished the name of Christ. In, in, in the sense of as his representatives, as his body, yes, it does bring a hamper to the perception that people have of Jesus, but it doesn't actually make Jesus lesser. That's good news. That the quality or the amount of eternal power that Jesus has, doesn't diminish based upon your behavior each day. He remains faithful even when we are faithless. Why? Because he can't deny himself. And so, as he's facing betrayal, as everyone around him, he knows it's going to split in some way. He remains faithful to God. Stephanie and I were recently watching a show and. One of the the main female characters was keeping her cool and composure when her husband was acting like an absolute baby. I remember Stephanie saying, gosh, I wish I could respond that way. And she wasn't necessarily saying I act like a baby, but I can't act like a baby. Where my unreasonableness pulls her into unreasonableness. And in the rare occasion where she might be slightly unreasonable, I have a tendency to react in the same way. Now, those of us with children also know that a three-year-old can take you from a very reasonable, logical thinker, very emotionally based, and turn you into a nine-year-old nut job, right? Amen? Yeah, it's weird. And Jesus, in the midst of knowing what was to come, as understanding the betrayal that would be had, remains faithful. An interesting thing, number two, is this, that Jesus shares a meal with an enemy. They're all behaving and believing like enemies, but there's one in particular who is an enemy. In Psalm 23, verse 5, the psalmist writes, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Remember that talking of anointing with oil last week in the passage before where the woman comes in and, as according to Judas, wastes an expensive, a one year's worth of wages amount of oil on Jesus. So there's this anointing with oil, this separation, this blessing on Jesus. This woman came and gave it all and we'll see Judas for very little go and take it all. Some people ask, what can Jesus do for me? The woman that came and poured the oil said, what could I possibly bring to him? But even in the face of that paradigm shift, even in the face of knowing what was to come next, Jesus sat down at this meal with an enemy. He did not doubt God's providential care. He leaned into it. He wasn't seeking to exercise his own justice and to make things right. He was trusting in his Father's justice To be right. And so as we want to become more like Christ, as we are growing into the image of Christ, as we're being discipled in the midst of authentic community, the way that we interact with those that we believe or are either perceived as or actually are behaving as enemies to us, we can do so with confidence, with patience and grace and mercy. Now obviously I'm not advocating you go and put yourself in a dangerous situation. You are not Jesus. But the reality is, is we are called to become more like Jesus. And what I want to encourage you towards is not necessarily putting yourself in a dangerous emotional place or physical place, as much as shifting how we think about justice. Throughout the entire life and death of Jesus, he was for the people, including his enemies. As he was hanging on the cross, he was declaring, Father Forgive them, for they know not what they do. As you read these passages and see how he responds, there might be one or two of you like, yeah, man, I'm I'm there, I can do that. I don't know about you, but my fight or flight kicks in. I I don't want to be anywhere near someone that's even been mean to me sometimes, or that I've had a misunderstanding with. Yet as the psalmist writes about him, the Lord as a shepherd making you to sit with your enemies. Why? Because God is God and we are not. And he's got it covered. Jesus not only goes and sits, but he does something very intimate and he enjoys a celebration and a meal. And he doesn't do so with an ulterior motive to try to manipulate a course. He goes and does so out of faithfulness to the Father. The way that he views the approach of his enemy is still under the scope of God's sovereign care. And what this does for you and what it does for me is not necessarily force us to focus on our inabilities, but to maybe help us see that there's more of Jesus that we still need to have. Beyond content, beyond books to read or podcasts to hear, or Bible reading and memorization, all of that is good, but if it's not producing the fruit of perseverance and obedience and faithfulness and creating joy in the midst of suffering, then we may not be pressing in as deeply as we believe we are to the Father in heaven. Because as we've seen Jesus step away and commune with the Father and to walk in obedience, to speak truth and love, He remains faithful even when those who follow Him are not. He shares meals with His enemies. And the third thing we see is that Jesus speaks clearly about the consequence of rejecting Him. So He's not just having a meal in a deceptive way covering up what's going on. He comes and directly confronts. The word confront we get from a French word that means literally to come face to face with. He comes face to face with the one that would betray Him. It says in verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. So Jesus is saying here, the Son of Man goes as it is written. Jesus the Son will be betrayed. He will be killed. He will be put in a grave and he will rise again. That will happen. It has been written in the prophets of the Old Testament. It has been foretold. It is necessary for it to happen in order that God's plan of redemption might be complete. It will take place. So Jesus is saying, this must be. But woe to the man, to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus speaks clearly about the consequence of rejecting him. The cost of betrayal of the Son of Man is eternal death and punishment and separation and isolation. The loneliness amplified infinity. The suffering the alienation to the one who rejects him. The rejection of the one that betrays him is not making Jesus less powerful, but is damning for the one who does it. And Jesus in this moment speaks clearly about the consequence of rejecting him. the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not ever existed. Friends, rejecting Jesus isn't merely a hip lifestyle choice. Rejecting Jesus is likening to the ultimate betrayal of trust. When we reject Jesus, we reject the invitation of God that says, trust me. And I would even say beyond invitation, I would say that it's a command. There's one that you can trust, and his name is Jesus. And to not trust him is to reject and to betray the very Son of God, who is God. And so as we look at Jesus' example, as we watch Jesus be faithful, it should call us to more. And I think the lower tier, the lower hanging fruit is, we're all Judases. I just want to put that out there. We all live finding ways to either overtly or subversively betray God and His will. How much sin can we get away with and still be okay? That's the common narrative of an immature Christian. How much can I get away with And still be okay with God. A non-believer would say, well, I'm a good enough person on my own. And so what you're saying to Jesus as that mindset is that I'm as good as you. The one who is without sin. Church, what I want to see happen for us is that we grow to become more like Christ. That we begin to live an extraordinary life. Not of just pronounced wealth and possessions and in political or cultural power, but of the power that is able to forgive, the power that is able to remain faithful in the face of adversity, the power to be able to speak truth and love, not for our own good or to build our own platform, but for the grace of God extended to men and women of all kinds. Now, I've been critiqued in the past, helpfully, not all critique is bad, that sometimes I I preach these big vision-type sermons but don't give much application. Other people critique me for giving too much application, so pray that I'm able to do both well. (laughs) Otherwise, we'll just trust the Holy Spirit to fill in the gaps. There's two primary things I want us to take away from this is, number one, remain faithful. Just because someone is sinning against you doesn't mean you sin in return. The problem is, is, Many of us don't live a daily walk with God that is building and exercising our faith. I remember in the eighth grade, I was fairly popular, and I was going to a pool party. I've come a long way in in being a better planner, but I had not planned to deal with the fact that I was extremely pale under my shirt, pasty white. I wasn't overly large or anything like that. I wasn't totally ripped, but I was very, very pale. And I woke up that morning of the party, I didn't, they didn't have spray tan back then, and if they did, it's way above my pay grade. They had that lotion you put on and turned your body orange, but that even took some time. And so I did what any young 13-year-old boy would do, is I took my clothes off, except for my bathing suit, and I went in my backyard that morning, begging a God I did not yet know for a tan. It doesn't take a very intelligent person to know what had happened. I did change colors a bit that day, but it was not very appealing, and the party was not comfortable at all. There's a gradual way that I could have built coloration of my skin, my very pale and white skin, but I waited till the last minute. And that's my fear for us. In our culture, we don't sense the urgency or demand to exercise our faith the gathering of the saints on each Sunday as we come together to sing and to serve and to give and to extend whatever amount of social relational energy that some of you have as introverts or to recharge your batteries as extroverts. We come and gather to exercise our faith that we're coming together as God's people declaring to God we have great need for him. We need God. We need to learn of him. We need to exercise our faith. We need to be challenged. We need to hear things that we may not agree with. We need to go and search the scriptures. When you hear us telling you to read your Bible, we're not telling you to become religious people. We want you to exercise your faith so that you have deep in your soul spiritual truth that sustains you and that empowers you and that enables you to face persecution and struggles. We call you to give generously, not because we're trying to get wealthy off your offerings, but so that you're not owned by your stuff, and that you rightly attribute value to God who is infinitely worthy. We call you here to be equipped so that when you open your mouth to your friend or neighbor or family member that doesn't know God and who's hurting deeply, you have something real and meaningful to say that's much more substantial than what they can hear on a talk show or from a self-help book remaining faithful means that we must be faithful it means that we must realize that while my life might not be that bad right now we don't wait for it to get bad to become faithful in the lord that we daily create habits and rhythms in our families that are faithful to produce um, and to see god's work in our lives And just just clarify sometimes i edit myself theologically when i'm speaking i'm like mm, that's not what i mean When I say to produce, God is producing the work, but a lot of times we miss it. God is producing invitations to trust him, and we miss it. And so we go from not really acknowledging God at all to having a huge crisis in our life and feeling bankrupt when it comes to spiritual equity. When we sit with a couple who is devastated because of unfaithfulness, and there isn't much in the faith tank, it's very difficult to help that person lift their eyes to the hill where their hope comes from. And very easy for them to look at the mirror and the person next to them and cast blame. There's a huge difference between those who are walking and growing in faithfulness and how they grieve a death than those who walk with no hope at all. It's different. And so this idea of exercising your faith and growing your faith day in and day out, daily making decisions and choices and disciplines that help strengthen you and empower you so that you might be able to persevere as it comes. Now, the Lord is faithful, very faithful. And I know some of your stories in here that even if you haven't been walking in deep faithfulness with the Lord, he will provide opportunities for you too. But my hope for us as a church, as we mature, as we go and make disciples, we begin to help people to see that it's not if life happens, it's when it happens. So that when we are offended or we are betrayed, it doesn't mean that we go to retaliation. It doesn't mean that we go and say, well, they've sinned against me, so it doesn't matter how I act to them. It begins to start saying like, although I've been sinned against retaliation basically says that I equate my righteousness with God's based on my own merit. And that's hard to hear. And if you're sitting here thinking like, I wouldn't have been able to sit at the table with Judas. I wouldn't have been able to speak that truth in love. I wouldn't have been able to remain faithful knowing what was coming. I would have had a hard time. Join the club. That's why we need more of God, because we're not there yet. That's why we need one another, because none of us are Christ. We need the body of Christ to come alongside of us, and to encourage us, and to challenge us, and to disappoint us. Maybe the next time the church disappoints you, you send a thank you note, because we're not Jesus. The next time your community group leader doesn't do good enough, or the community group leader's wife doesn't disciple you personally enough, Thank God, because that person's not your savior. And we have a tendency to project on other people that which can only be found in God. We have a tendency to put on our spouse messianic qualities that he or she is never able to live up to. If you're looking to your spouse to build your self-confidence and, and to deal with your insecurities, no matter how many times, ladies, he says, no, you are beautiful to me. No, you are lovely. No, you make me happy. The deep hole in bankruptcy within you really begins with a faith issue, not your husband. Because there's, your, there's times where your husband will be a jerk. Amen, guys? Mm-hmm. There are times, guys, very rarely, where your wife will not be the kindest. Amen, ladies. She's like, You know this. And we want to just throw everything away because of this and walk away and do our own thing. That's acting as if God is not real. We remain faithful. We look for opportunities to remain faithful to God. And it's hard to be faithful to God if you don't know much about him. That's why. That's why we're saying get to know the Lord. When I tell you to share the gospel with somebody and encourage you and equip you to talk to people about Jesus, what if they say no? They're saying no to God. not saying no to you. leads me to my second application we must learn to speak clearly we must learn to communicate learning to speak clearly means learning first to listen first to the Lord if all of your quiet times in are, are pretty much you talking to God you're treating God like a drive-through window rather than a sovereign king if you're not positioning yourself before his word and in silence to hear from God then you're really telling God rather than obeying God. If you wanna grow in faith and learn to be faithful, you must learn to speak clearly, and we learn to speak clearly first by listening more. So that when we open our mouths, as my friend Neil likes to say, when you open your mouth, eternity comes out. So that you have something to say that is meaningful. The ultimate need of the persons betraying you is Jesus. To betray someone is to break their trust, is to harm them emotionally or to go against that which is expected or should be. Just because someone betrays you doesn't mean you instantaneously give them trust back. That's sometimes the worst thing we could possibly do for somebody is trust them. I have a friend who's a psychologist. He's in his 60s probably now. And he was talking to teenagers' parents one time. I was speaking, and he was talking. He said, parents, the worst thing you can do for your kids is trust them. That's the most damaging thing you could do. He says, you can trust them some, but don't ever trust them completely. That's not fair to them. That's advocating your responsibility. And I think a lot of us do that with people. We put too much faith in people. We have too high of a belief, and therefore, when they don't meet our expectation, it offends us. But the concern really ought to be is when someone is missing the standard of God's standard, our primary concern shouldn't be their disappointment that they're causing us, but the sin that they're doing to the Father in heaven. That's true in parenting, that's true in marriage, that's true in relationships, that's true with strangers, because no matter how wrathful you can be, it'll never match the eternal wrath of God. And so as we're looking here, watching the example of Jesus eating this meal, dialoguing with his disciples, being challenged, bringing challenge to them, bringing confrontation to them, we can see that through obedience to the Father, knowing that the Father's plan is right and good, he's not so much gauging on what he feels like, he's doing what he knows is true. Because he knows the Father. He knows he's been sent for a purpose, and he's still bringing justice and clarity to his disciples. Remaining faithful is really our call. I deal with a lot of church planters. I'm a church planter. I work with a lot of church planters. I oversee um, pastoral care for pastors in Acts 29 Houston. And we're constantly challenged for success. Be successful planters. You've got to be successful. You're going to be the speaker at this conference and write these books and do all these things and everything else. And someone asked me, Casey, what do you think success is? And I said, faithfulness. Am I faithful to love God? Am I faithful to love people? And am I faithful to make disciples? And am I faithful to challenge our leaders to do that? Am I, am I faithful to be challenged by our leaders when we're not? Are we being faithful? Because ultimately, that's the greatest thank you to God, is faithfulness. Responding to his faithfulness with faithfulness. And that's a gift of God. The faith is not something we muster up, and and I think that's where youth camps and church gets it wrong, is that we've got to work harder to be faithful. I say no, we've got to position ourselves for faithfulness. We've got to be with the faithful one. We've got to know him and be known by him. We've got to walk daily with the faithful one so that when we're faced with life, we can respond in faith. If you would begin doing that, even if it's just reading a proverb each day based upon the day of the month, your wisdom will improve. You'll be able to rightly know what to do with what's coming your way. Hang out in one of the Gospels with Jesus. Walk, Watch as He interacts with His disciples. Come back each week as we dig daily or each Sunday into the Gospel of Mark leading up to Easter, watching how Jesus perseveres and obeys even when those around Him He knows are going to fail Him. Jesus perseveres through betrayal. How? Out of, from a place of dependence on his Father. That's how. I want to encourage you to grow in faithfulness through obedience to the Father by positioning yourself to hear from him. And by being here this morning, that's one step in that direction. Let's invite him to show us many more steps. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for the life and example and command of Jesus, of what faithfulness looks like. Father, we do thank you for the earthly examples of faithfulness you've placed in our lives through men and women and family members and friends. But Lord, we also know our tendency to place higher emphasis on that than on who you are. And Father, as the Apostle Paul said, imitate me as, a, as I imitate Christ. We do want to be an example of what it looks like to imitate Christ, beginning in our homes and in our relationships and our families and in our workplaces into the world. And so Lord, we ask you would help us to that. Father, I ask if we are struggling to remain faithful or if any man or woman or child is struggling here with faith today or has not yet placed their hope and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of his or her sin, I pray, God, that you would help him or her to do that today that they would realize that on their own they are not able to remain faithful to you, but that Jesus has. Even while sharing a meal with his enemies, he was remained faithful to you, our King. And so, Lord, as we continue this time of worship by remembering the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would bring hope, you would bring help, that you would bring perseverance and faith. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.